0: Hello Christ Chapel, it is so good to join with you today and and to worship our great God just as we've done a few moments ago and of course to open up his word and to hear his voice speak into our situation in these days. It really is a privilege and and so let's go ahead and do that. Go and grab a Bible and turn to the book of Ruth, Ruth chapter 2 please. We're in the third week of a series on God's unfailing love. It's a theme that runs through the book, and it speaks of God's love toward us, but it's manifested, it's incarnated in the interactions of godly people. As God's people uh, treat one another in the, in the way that God would want them to treat one another, then God's unfailing love uh, comes to life. It's, it's mediated through those who walk with him. It's, it's a wonderful book, and it's a wonderful series. So turn to chapter 2. And as you go there, let me remind you that we're in very difficult days. We're in the judges period of history. If you you read the book of Judges, you you will read that that God's people are are, are caught in a web of sin continually, and and that has consequences. They're disobeying God and, and God removes himself and and People come and take over the land and, and plagues and famine, et cetera, come their way, all because God's people are disobedient. It's, it's a tough time. And of course, we were reminded of that in the last few weeks as well, as we turned to chapter one of Ruth, where even those who are somewhat innocent of the, the sin that's causing all the chaos fall victim too to the tough times, to the difficult days like Naomi and like Ruth. In chapter one, if, if you recall, we see Naomi tasting the, the bitterness of life. All that life can, can brutally throw at her comes her way. Remember, there's a famine and they have to relocate to, to Moab. Imagine being so hungry that you can't find food and that you can't feed your little boys breakfast that morning or lunch, or dinner. There's, there's a famine in the land, and, and and she has to go with her family to a foreign land. Imagine having to relocate internationally to a people that you do not know, to practices that are alien to you, to customs that are strange, to to speech that is peculiar to you. I'm talking about Naomi. I'm not, I'm not talking about my move to Texas, even though uh, I've I know you think that I talk funny, but you should hear how I hear all of you. You talk funny to me also. And strange customs as well, like everywhere I go, I buy a sandwich or a burger, somebody throws a pickle into it. What's with that? I know what it means to move internationally. But she has to move because times are tough and that's difficult. She's a foreigner in a foreign land with, with strange customs and it's a very pagan society that they live in. And then she ends up not just with one and not two, but three funerals, family funerals. She loses the love of her life. And then those two little boys that she relocated to try and feed, and she comforted when dad died and she grew up to be, to be men, they die also. And she's left alone in a foreign land. That's, that's tough. That's rough. Naomi tastes the bitterness of life. As, as I read through chapter one again, I, I was asking the question, why God? Where, where are you, God? That's, that's rough on this lady. Of course, the book of Ruth doesn't answer that question. Other, other books do. The book of Job, as Pastor Cody mentioned a few weeks ago, and, and Habakkuk as well. They deal with issues of of why, God, and where are you, God. Ruth's more concerned with answering the question, how do we live in difficult days? How how do God's people live in tough times, in difficult days, in in these days, the days that, that we live in also? And Ruth, too, begins to answer that. Sort of a, a, a door is, is swung open in Ruth 2 from chapter 1, where we see that, that, that God, though he seems distance, distant, is not. That Though he seems disconnected, he's not. He's at work, and he works through people. He works through godly people who, who ooze his unfailing love to those around you. So let's, let's work our way through chapter two. I'd like to focus this week on what we learn from our major character that's introduced there, a chap called Boaz. And then next week, we'll look at a different angle also in Ruth two. So let me, let me walk you through the, the first few verses there. They're a setting really to the book where, where we are reminded of the, the plight that, that Ruth and Naomi are in, as well as are introduced to our hero. Look at at verse 1. Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. So God wants us to enter into this scene aware that Naomi has a relative from her husband's side and that this relative is a worthy man. God wants you to see that, that here is a man who can help he can help. Now, that doesn't mean that he will help, but he can help. Not all who can help do help. That's, that's a convicting thought. But the Scriptures describe to us that this man is a, is a worthy man. And there's a few terms that are used there in the, in the Hebrew Scriptures that are translated into, into worthy man there. And they collectively speak of, yes, his wealth and his prosperity, his, his reputation in town as a man of means, but, but more specifically, his character, his reputable character, his godly character. This is a man of godly convictions. This is the sort of individual that, that I hope would come to Christ's chapel because we're like-minded. He's a good guy. He's a godly guy. Verse 2 and 3, take us back to Ruth and Naomi. And Ruth, the Moabite, said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she, that is Naomi, said to her, go, my daughter, So, Ruth, she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. She happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. So, glued to Boaz's introduction, we return to our our damsels in distress, right? Naomi and Ruth. And we're particularly told that Ruth comes up with a plan. They're hungry, They, they need to eat. And so Ruth's plan is to go out into a field and to glean. And and what that means is to go behind the harvesters, a little distance behind them, and to pick up the scraps of of grain that, that they drop, that they don't harvest, that they don't pick up. And she has a right to do that because God's law, which was given a few hundred years before that, catered to the vulnerable, catered to the poor allowed them by by law, by right, to be able to stand back from the harvesters and to pick up all the scraps that were left when they were harvesting the field. God's concerned for them. They need to eat too, and they don't own any fields. So so Ruth's plan is is to follow her law, the the law of God and and her legal right, to to get some food for, for her and for Naomi. So that's the setting, those first three verses, where we're introduced to two people who have a problem. They're in tough times. They're in difficult days still. They're hungry. As well as to an individual who can help. And the question is, will he help? But we're conditioned to think that it's likely that he will because he's a worthy man. Now, let's, let's explore him a little bit. Uh, uh, the passage, uh, chapter 2, focuses on Boaz. So look at verse four. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. So Boaz emerges in verse four as we expected in light of what we read in verse one. Just a nice guy, a godly guy, a pleasant chap just naturally friendly and courteous and decent. Uh, The words of greeting that that he sends in the direction of his workers are supposed to communicate to you that he's concerned about his workers. He he likes them. He addresses them. Uh, And their response indicates that, that they're fond of him too. They're fond of their boss. This this boss, Boaz, doesn't ignore them and just walk on by them to wherever his office is in that field, his executive suite, because because he has spreadsheets to look at, right? And he's big decisions to make because he's the boss. No, he doesn't do that. He doesn't walk past them and sort of send a few grunts out their way. He 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 stops and he sees them and he acknowledges their existence. And he speaks God's blessing onto their lives. He presumably smiles also. This is a decent individual. And decent people are like that. They're naturally friendly. They're naturally courteous. Important roles don't mean that they see themselves as more important people. Just because he has position of influence and prosperity does not mean that he is a more valuable person. Decent people know that, and they live in light of that. He's a worthy man. He treats people as precious. All to say, verse 4 really gets us going with Boaz being a decent person. This man, this relative of Naomi's, that is introduced into the story, is a decent person. Boaz is a decent person. He's friendly. He's respectable. He's a man of good character. Look at verse 5. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? Referring to Ruth. So Boaz's practice is, is practices clearly to start the day by having a conversation with his foreman. And, you know, good stewards of of anything will will do that. They'll be attentive and alert uh, and inquire uh, about what's going on in the sphere of stewardship that they're managing, that they're responsible for. He's watched, he's been alert, he's been engaged, and he's noticed that there's someone there that's not usually there. And so he asks the foreman, well, who is she? Who is Ruth? Who's that? When I read this this week and I was studying it, my mind took me back to my student days at Dallas Seminary. And the first few years that I was there, I lived in the men's single dormitory. I was engaged to be married, but I wasn't married yet, so I had to go in with all the single guys. And it was a lot of fun, and Pastor Cody lived there as well, and so he can tell you all about it. But one of the things that created huge buzz around the halls and the dining halls and the dormitory of the single men was the beginning of every semester. And the reason for that was because there was a new group of ladies who were starting their studies at Dallas Seminary too. And these were single guys. And these were future pastors. And, and it was pure. They wanted, a, they wanted a godly wife. So what you'd hear continually was, who's that? Or did you see her? Who's that? I wonder if she's taken. That's not what's going on here with Boaz. His, his question to his foreman is not romantic in its leaning. It, it's just generally inquiring about the state of affairs on his field. Who is this? Tell me about her. Now, verses 6 and 7, the foreman gives us an account. We're not going to read it. It's essentially what we saw in chapter 1 of Ruth. The foreman explains to Boaz who Ruth is and what she has done for Naomi. What I want you to see in verse 5 is that Boaz is an attentive person. Boaz is an alert person. He's an engaged person. He's not just a decent guy. He's also an attentive chap. And decent people notice people. They notice people. They they want to know the backstory of other individuals. They're interested in people's stories. Boaz is decent and Boaz is attentive. This is all escalating. Look at verse 8. Once he hears the report from the foreman, Boaz then goes and addresses Ruth. And look at what he says. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field, or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping, and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you're thirsty, go to the vessels, and drink what the young men have drawn. So Boaz is clearly concerned about Ruth's safety. He's concerned about Ruth's safety, and so uh, he, he, he wants her to, to, to have the security that he can provide because she's walked into his sphere of influence. And she's vulnerable. She's a foreigner. And she can be exploited as well, not just because she's a foreigner, but because she's a widow. So Boaz wants to to help her. Uh, He also knows that she has needs, and the needs aren't just safety. The needs are also hunger, food, thirst. And so he makes sure that she knows that she has a right to be on his field. In this field, you will have protection, Ruth. In this field, my field, Boaz says, you will have as much food as you can possibly glean. In this field, you will not thirst. You will be able to drink. You've access to the staff room, essentially, is what Boaz is saying. Again, at Dallas Seminary where I teach, there's a faculty lounge. And it's, it's wonderful between classes to be able to go in there and to, to grab a coffee or a snack. But, but in the faculty lounge, there's what's called the magic fridge. And the magic fridge is, is just a wonderful little perk that puts a smile on profs' faces. It's a fridge that contains a whole bunch of different cold drinks. Cokes, iced teas, cold water, etc. And we have a right to open that magic fridge and take out whatever we want to drink. It's a wonderful little perk. This, this is essentially Boaz's magic fridge for Ruth. Stick here. Work here refresh yourself here. I'm entitling you to that. And, and Ruth detects his kindness. In verse 10, she says, uh, she fell on her face, bound to the ground, and she said to him, why have I found fear in your eyes, that you should take notice of me since I'm a foreigner? Ruth, Ruth picks up on, on his care and his concern. She detects it. It's palpable. Boaz isn't just a decent person. Boaz isn't just an attentive person. Boaz is also a caring person. He cares for people. He does something about those he cares for. Now, let's look at why. Verse 11 all the way through to verse 12 begin to get us into the motivation that is driving Boaz. Uh, Boaz answered her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death husband has been fully told to me and how you left your father, and your mother, and your native land, and you came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord reap you for what you have done, and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Boaz is very clearly indicating to Ruth here that he has heard her story. And he is impressed. It's remarkable. She's a remarkable woman. She's sacrificed greatly to extend unfailing love to her mother-in-law in her distress. And she has turned to God, the God of Israel, the only God, the true God. She's come to a saving faith in, in, in God, in Yahweh, just as Pastor Cody mentioned Last week, that word turn is key in chapter one. She has turned to God. And when you turn to God, you enter into his sphere of stewardship, into his sphere of care and protection and kindness. Just like Boaz lives in. Boaz just wants to pass on to her what he's learned from his God. Boaz is a theologian. He knows God. He knows what God is like and what God expects And that's remarkable because remember, we're in the Judges period. And when you read the book of Judges, you realize that nobody really cares for much of what God has to say. Boaz does. He knows God and, and he knows God's kindness. He's a godly man. The Apostle Paul in Galatians 6 says to the believers in the Galatian churches that anytime they have the opportunity to do good, that they should take it. To all people, but especially to the household of God is what Paul says. Especially to believers, especially to others who have also turned toward God as the only true God. Boaz, centuries before Paul, is living that out because it's rooted in who God is. He's also, in one sense, doing what James, in the book of James, tells us. James 1, verse 27, where James says that that pure and, and undefiled religion is that you look after the orphans and that you look after the widows, that you put some shoes on what you believe and look after the people who are most marginalized in society. Boaz says to Ruth, Ruth, I've heard your story. You're one of us. You're a follower of God. And God's going to be kind to you, and so I'm going to be kind to you. Boaz is a godly person. Verse 12 is is huge here. It's it's helping us see that this worthy man is a worthy man because of his commitments and his understandings concerning God in a very godless era in Israel's history. He views people through God's eyes, and, and godly people, if they are godly, should be decent and should be attentive, and should be caring, because they're godly. Look at verse 14 and on to 16 as well. At at mealtime, Boaz said to her, to Ruth, come here and eat some bread, and, and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain. She ate until she was satisfied, and and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her, and also pull out some from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. Boaz isn't just caring because he's godly. Boaz is exceptional in his kindness. He's exceptionally kind. This, is, this isn't just kindness. This is going over and beyond type of kindness. This is over-the-top kindness. This is unusual kindness, both publicly and privately. He calls her up publicly to sit at the top table, as it were, right? Right with the executives. You know, A public display of Boaz's favor upon this woman by calling her up to sit at his side and eat what he eats. I mean, it doesn't sound very appetizing to me, right? A little bit of bread dipped in wine with roasted grain. But it's their ancient version of what you'd get in their Panera, I guess. He's serving her up some good food. And she gets a to-go bag as well. There's lots left over that she's going to take home to Naomi. But he's also private in his exceptional kindness toward Ruth. And Ruth may never know this. He says to his workers, essentially, let her do whatever she wants in this field. Don't don't have her walk behind you picking up the scraps. She's the right now to, to pick up Whatever she wants, even the good stuff. In fact, I want you to subtly drop some of the good stuff so that she can pick it up and not feel like it was charity. He gives her dignity, privately, anonymously. He grants her dignity. It's beautiful. Boaz is an exceptionally kind person, he's an exceptionally kind person. Person, And that's a fact that Naomi, and we're not going to go there, she recognizes this by the end of the chapter. When Ruth comes back with her report about what happened that day, and with a month's worth of food in her, in her bag, Naomi detects that you've been in the field of a relative of my deceased husband, and he's a worthy man. He's a kind man. He's a man of character. We knew this all along when we started in verse one. He's a man of convictions. So what's the point of of what I'm trying to draw out of this beautiful story? Uh, This man of of God who who models for us a certain type of, of living in tough times. It's simply this, that God's people are to be exceptionally kind people. We're to be exceptionally kind people. Especially in difficult days, especially toward those who are facing tough times. We're to be his chesed people. His chesed people. And I know what you're thinking. You're like, what's chesed? That's. That's not English. It's also not Irish, so don't go that route. It's, it's actually a Hebrew term that we use in, in theology, and we, and we keep it in English according to its Hebrew pronunciation because English doesn't really have a word that captures the Hebrew term. And so when you look at translations of the Scriptures, uh, we, we're, we're working with things like it means loyal love, or it means loving kindness, or it means unfailing love. It means unusual kindness. We're we're trying to grasp in English something that captures what chesed clearly is in the Scriptures. And and all of them help. Boaz is a chesed-worthy man. Chesed is rooted in the character of God. It's who God is. It's who God says he is. One of the greatest self-revelations of God's identity, of of how he wants us to see him, comes our way in Exodus 34, where, where Moses asks God, who are you? And, and, and God essentially says, I am the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God who is slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and faithfulness, chesed. I'm a God of chesed. It's, it's why the Ten Commandments, there's ten, but there are really two types in those 10. There's four that deal with loving God and there's four that deal with loving people. That if you love God, you love people. And when you live like that in a society, you're reflecting the character of God abounding in loving kindness. It's why on down the the corridors of history, when when Jesus is asked in Matthew 22 or in Mark 12, what does God want? Tell us what he wants. Jesus says, we call it the greatest commandment, that you love God and that you love people. In fact, you cannot love God except through people, through expressing this God-like quality of chesed. The book of Ruth is all about chesed. My, my Hebrew prof, when I studied this years ago, told me that you can't really say chesed well unless it sounds like you're clearing your throat, and those around you think you're going to sort of launch at them what you cleared. Now, I know that's quite visual, but it's okay. Preachers get a bit of a license there with visual imagery. Chesed. It's a beautiful term. Ruth's all about chesed. I mean, the book of Ruth is all about chesed, the chesed of God, the loving kindness of God that is palpable in the interactions of those who call themselves godly. So, so let me wrap this up for you. How do I live for God in these difficult days? Well, Ruth tells us what God consistently wants, what God always wants and he still wants, be they dark days or be they sunny days. That decent, attentive, caring, godly, exceptionally kind people, Boaz-like people, busy themselves with chesed kindness. That you and I, if we call ourselves the church of Jesus Christ, are to to shine, right? Are Are to live that out practically through kindness towards others. Three things as I help you think about that this week. I said kindness is, is vocal and it's practical kindness. It, 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 it oozes out of, of your words, right? The way you talk to people. Perhaps even not just vocal, but what, what, visual, what people see. Do you smile at them? Do you look at them? But it's also practical. It does something with what he or she encounters. It's attentive. It's alert, Remember. It's, like, it's acknowledging other people's existence like Boaz did, right? It's going out to walk your dog and, and smiling at your neighbor and saying hello. It's, 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 it's saying good morning to your postman. It's waving at your yard guy, maybe taking him a drink that's nice and cold because it's getting hot these days. It's not something that you artificially put on, like a, like a, a switch being flipped. It's, it's who you are because you're spending time in the presence of a chesed God. It's vocal. It's practical. I read a few weeks ago about Father Giuseppe Berardelli. Father Giuseppe Berardelli is a priest in Italy and he's known in his community for being cheerful and a great listener and a constant smiler. And as I read his story, I was fascinated about this priest. He he buzzes around his town in a a red motorbike, grinning from ear to ear, hopping from house to house to just cheer people up. But the town in which he ministered was in northern Italy, that that region in Italy that was hit bad by COVID-19. And he's 72 years old and he was hospitalized with COVID-19. And after a few weeks, uh, Father Giuseppe passed away. He died. And what was remarkable about the spin that the story brought in my direction is that Father Giuseppe actually had a ventilator that would have saved his life. You've got to understand ventilators still, but certainly a month ago, were like gold all over the world. You couldn't get your hands on one. But he had one because a year earlier he had some respiratory problems and the church loves him so much that they bought him a ventilator. Father Giuseppe turned the ventilator down and instructed the doctors to go and give it to somebody who was younger than him because they would need it more. Beautiful act of kindness. Not just vocal, but practical. Did it, went about it. Sacrificial too. So chesed kindness is vocal and practical. Chesed kindness can also be large and microscopic, small. We often think that, that kindness and exceptional kindness can only come in, in large packages. It can come in small packages too. It doesn't have to be huge to count. Don't in, underestimate the, the, the little small acts of kindness that can change someone's life their day can put a spring in their step. Like, like, like Boaz, just inviting Ruth up to, to have a little bit of bread dipped in wine. Where I come from, there's a new national hero. His name's Captain Tom Moore. But Captain Tom Moore is an, has only become a, a national hero in the last month or so. In fact, a few days ago, he was knighted. He's now Sir Tom Moore. Uh, And the reason for this is, is quite simple and small in its origins. He decided on April 6th that he was going to do something small to help our National Health Service. So he decided that all he could do was walk around his garden. So he decided that for the next 24 days, he was going to walk around his garden 100 times. It, it, it seems small, but you see, in 24 days, Captain Tom Moore was going to become 100 years old. So it was going to be a Zimmer frame-assisted uh, 100 laps around his garden. Small step for him, and for us as we, as we listen to that, but, but a massive step for the National Health Service because his target was to raise £1,000, which is about $1,200. Just last week... We were all, the nation was informed that he raised over $50 million. People were just fascinated by this little small act of kindness, by this small old man who wanted to do his little bit for the National Health Service, for those frontline workers that are keeping us all safe. Microscopic, but hugely impacting. I said kindness can be, can be large and small. And lastly, it can be very open Or it can be anonymous. You can express your kindness publicly and openly like like Boaz did, but you can also express it subtly and privately and anonymously. In fact, anonymous kindness might actually help you not get too much of an inflated ego or too much unnecessary attention or or move attention away from the act to you. Boaz was was anonymously kind too. Remember, let let her glean among you. Let her pick up from the bundles that you've already gathered so that she gets the good stuff. I love the story of the man who was asked to paint another guy's boat, and he did. He went to paint the boat. He painted it red. He noticed a little hole in the hull, so he fixed the hole and finished the paint job, was paid, and went home. The next day, the owner of the boat knocked on his door and provided him a a massive uh, cheque. He paid him three times more than what he had paid him the day before. And, and the painter said, no, no, I've, I've already paid for the job. Don't you remember? Yesterday, I, paid, I was paid for it. And the owner said, no, you, you don't understand. You, you fixed a hole in the hull of the boat. He says, well, yes, I know, but it was a small thing. It, it, I didn't even think you'd notice. And he said, no, no, I noticed. I noticed. In fact, I meant to tell you to fix that hole, and I forgot. But you did it anyway. But I didn't know. Now, you have to understand that yesterday when I came home and noticed that the the boat was gone and realized that my boys had gone out fishing on the boat, I thought there was still a hole in that boat. And I panicked and I was desperate until I heard the, 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 the shrieks of joy and the giggling of them coming back. And I looked at the boat and I realized, you had fixed that hole. That small little anonymous hidden private act meant the world to me. It brought my boys home from their fishing trip. I said, kindness can be open and grand, but it can also be small and anonymous and private. All kindness matters. So, Christ Chapel, are these difficult days? Yes. Does, does God care? Yes. How does God care according to Ruth 2 this week? He cares through the mediation of God's people incarnating, I said, kindness to those around them. He wants you to be his hands and his feet to those who enter into your sphere of life. Like farmer Boaz expressed kindness to this foreigner Ruth in a field, in just a field on a farm. Like, like, like foreigner Ruth expressed kindness to her mother-in-law on a, on a dirt track heading back to Bethlehem in chapter 1 like we saw last week. When God's people busy themselves with vocal and practical, with, with large and microscopic types of kindness, with, with public and private or anonymous kindness, God's chesed flows in tough, tough times. And what is the bitter life that people are experiencing can become a little bit more pleasant, just like Naomi was beginning to experience. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are so kind in opening it up to us so that we hear your voice clearly, so that we receive the instruction in these very difficult days of how you want us to live in a way that represents you your character, your chesed, your loving kindness. Help us to do that this week. Help us to find ways of doing it, be it on a grand scale on a very small and private and anonymous scale. We rely on your Holy Spirit to help us do that today. In Jesus' name, amen.